we come now to the Reformation again. We are, we are back in England. I chose William Tyndale for the last session for a reason. A lot of times when you talk about the Reformation, you're always going to hear about Martin Luther, of course, but you're going to hear a lot about John Calvin, and rightfully so. John Calvin was a brilliant, genius expositor, had so much impact on, on the world. And we could talk about John Knox in Scotland and the founder of Presbyterianism. And we talk about a lot of men uh, during this time, Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland. Um, I forgot to mention a book, by the way, that I wanted to tell you about. There's a really small book by Stephen Nichols called The Reformation. Real catchy, um, wonderful book. Stephen Nichols is so funny too, so much humor there. You could read that in a, in a day if you wanted to. Really short book. And he has a great story about how Orwick Zwingli came to be a reformer who was sitting at a sausage supper, supper during Lent. And he's Swiss and they told him he couldn't have sausage because it was Lent. And he set out to determine that Lent was a false doctrine so that he could have his sausage during the time, of the, you know, so he could get rid of Lent. Anyways, that's a great, that's a great book. You should look that up. Um, but William Tyndale, in my estimation, does not get enough credit. He wouldn't want credit, but... The, the impact that he has had on you today, you probably don't even realize the impact that he has had. John Wycliffe had been the first man to translate the Bible into English, and, and, and that was a, a wonderful accomplishment. He, he was a, a rebel, an outlaw. He was a man hated by the Roman Catholic Church so much so, again, that they exhumed his body, they burned him, and then they threw his ashes into the Rhine River, all for that crime of giving the people a Bible that they can read. By the time we arrive into the 16th century now with William Tyndale, first of all, it's, it's illegal to have any part of Wycliffe's Bible. And if you, you do, they're going to kill you. The Lollards had been mostly martyred by this point and killed for what they were doing. And, and so there just wasn't really any Wycliffe Bibles that were around. And, and if you could find one, historians tell us that they were very expensive. One of them said that it would be like in today's money going out and buying a high-end Mercedes to buy a, a Wycliffe Bible. So even if you could find one, Chances are you couldn't afford one. Uh, very, very expensive, also illegal. And so Reformation had not yet come to England in fullness in spite of all that John Wycliffe had done. He was the morning star, but the day had not yet dawned in England. Well, The man we're studying now, William Tyndale, is a man who would study in, in Wycliffe and, and in Luther's footsteps here in England, a man who would truly give the people an English Bible, the Bible that you have in your hands today, you owe to William Tyndale. It's really quite remarkable. We were talking about this yesterday. The man we're about to talk about died so that you could have a Bible in your hand. And in your pocket, you have every translation ever made. And yet we scroll Facebook or Twitter or sports or whatever. It just shows you how much we take for granted what these men sacrificed to give us. Well, here's Tyndale. Tyndale was a man with a singular focus. He had one driving purpose in life. Now, usually when you talk about somebody like that, it's hyperbole, unless you're talking about somebody who's really extraordinary at one particular thing. 
When you talk about somebody with one sole purpose in life, a lot of times that's hyperbole. That was not the case with William Tyndale. He cared about one thing. He did not care about his life. He didn't care about his body. didn't care about his money. didn't care about anything that happened to him. He cared about one thing and one thing only, and that was putting the Bible into the hands of people. Jesus gave the command to His disciples in Luke 9, 23, that if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow Me. Tyndale lived that life. He lived the life every day, not under the protection of Duke Frederick. He lived his life every day knowing that today could be the day that he would die for this purpose. And he didn't care. That's not what concerned him. He lived his life in poverty. He had no possessions. He had no home. He depended upon the kindness of his brothers in Christ to take him in, to provide for him, to give him a place where he could work and do what he was doing. And every day of his life, he pursued completing the Bible into English and preaching and evangelizing It's all that he lived for. He had nothing to his name. Nothing. He gave it all up for this one purpose. He was an amazing man. A man who ultimately would be hated so much by the church that they would tie him to a stake and they weren't content to burn him. They would first strangle him with chains. Then they would burn him. And that still wasn't enough. They put gunpowder around him and they blew him up. That's how much they hated William Tyndale. The Bible that you have is stained with William Tyndale's blood. And we should give God praise for working in such a man like this that he would be that selfless. Well, he's born sometime between 1492 and 1495 in the western part of England near Wales. We've already discussed this, so we won't again, but the world into which he was born was, of course, a world of darkness. Wycliffe's Bible was banned in the 1380s. In the 1408, the Constitutions of Oxford was passed, which forbade any translation of the Bible into English except, and this is important for later, except if you had the permission of a bishop in England. If you had a bishop, a bishop's permission, then you could make a translation, but nobody was foolish enough to do that, as we, as we will see in, in, in just a little while. And so you could not have an English Bible in your possession. If you did have a Bible, you'd be burned at the stake. If you read it, if you quoted it, if you referred to it, they would kill you. And this is what we're talking about. When you hear people talk about Roman Catholicism as another denomination, it's not. When you see evangelicals and Catholics together, run from this. This is not another denomination. It's another religion with another gospel. And here in America, they've watered it down, and you might not recognize it, but I promise you, you go down to South America and you'll see Catholicism full-throated. You will see it. Um, They hated Christian people. They hated Protestants. They hated Scripture. And so you had all of this darkness. There's actually a torture chamber still there today in London, which was known as the Lollard's Tower, where the Lollards were tortured and killed. Well, according to 
one source that described the spiritual landscape of Tyndale's hometown. He said this, nine clergy did not know how many commandments there were. How many commandments are there? Yeah, (laughs) nine clergy didn't know how many commandments there were. Thirty-three did not know where they appeared in the Bible. 168 could not repeat them. 39 did not know where the Lord's Prayer appeared in the Bible. 34 did not know the author. And 10 were unable to recite it. We're talking about basic things here. And that is the state of the clergy, not the laymen, the clergy. Pure ignorance. The church is filled with superstition, veneration of relics, admiration of the church fathers, tradition, submission to papal authority, all these other things. This is the world of William Tyndale. His parents were wool merchants. They were successful. They sent him off to Oxford when he was 12 years old. And when you talk about an intellect, William Tyndale Tyndale may have been the brightest of them all. By the time he dies, he is fluent in eight languages. William Tyndale uh, could could speak uh, Latin, he could speak Spanish, Italian, English, German, French, and he knew Hebrew and Greek. What are you doing with your life? He, I feel so guilty every time I talk about this. He was, he was brilliant. And so at 12 years old, he goes off to Oxford, and he receives what was believed to be at this time the very best education in all the world. He received his bachelor's in 1512, graduated with his master's in 1515, but he was very critical of that education because he saw it to be the secularization of the student. Boy, uh, do we know anything about that? Before there was ever any access to the Scriptures, they were filled with secular philosophy and all sorts of other things, and William, William Tyndale, writing about that later, really spoke badly about that. Well... Following his graduation from Oxford where he wasn't given a Bible until his ninth year there at Oxford studying for the priesthood. Well, following his graduation from Oxford, he's ordained as a priest. And then he goes to Cambridge to study Greek. And when he gets to Cambridge, he is finally exposed to Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther's works and his writing, they were just spreading all over the place. And people were talking about them, especially in the university. Uh, John Calvin would hear about Luther at the University of Paris. I mean, the, 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 the universities are talking about what Martin Luther is doing. And there at Cambridge, Tyndale is introduced to Protestantism and Lutheranism. Well, there at Cambridge, there is a tavern known as the White Horse Inn. You familiar with the White Horse Inn? Well, it's there at Cambridge. Many Many people who are here, Latimer, for example, Cranmer, there are men here at at this White Horse Inn when Tyndale is here who are later going to be martyred as Protestants, killed for the Christian faith. Well, there at the White Horse Inn, they are having Bible studies and they're discussing what Luther's theology, they're discussing the gospel, justification by faith alone, and it is believed to be there where Luther came to understand the truth of the gospel. Well, in 1521, he returned to his hometown he became a tutor for a very successful and wealthy family, Sir John Walsh, who was, was a knight. And, and this family was very hospitable. They were a lot like the Gulps back there who don't mind having people in their home all the time. And, and, and the Walsh family would have people over all the time. And they would use their table to discuss 
high and important matters, theological matters and whatever else it might be. And William Tyndale would sit at this table with priests and with monks and whoever else who would come and he would just debate them every night on, on the Scriptures. And like Luther and Wycliffe before them, those men really could not stand uh, against the brilliance and the understanding of Tyndale. This was a man who was very, very knowledgeable in the Scriptures. And it's here at this table where he sees really the ignorance of the clergy. And it's kind of surprising to him to see how little the clergy actually knows about Scripture. But through these events, he's getting a reputation as a troublemaker. He's also going into town, standing on street corners and street preaching to people which again is building him up a reputation. Eventually he's going to be called, the worst word you can be called, a heretic because of what he's doing at the table and because of his street preaching. Well, one day the Walsh family hosted a leading Catholic clergyman who, were, who was engaged in conversation with Tyndale and the Catholic clergyman said to Tyndale, quote, we would be better off without God's laws than to be without the Pope's laws. End quote. William Tyndale famously responded, I defy the Pope and all his laws. And if God spare my life for many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the Scriptures than you do. And that would become his life's purpose. That event in his life meant something to him. He didn't say those words just out of anger or spite. He said them and He meant them. And He wanted to make it His life's work to give the people the Bible. William Tyndale wrote this. He said, I perceived how that it was impossible to establish the lay people in any truth except the Scripture were plainly laid before their eyes in their mother tongue that they might see the process, order, and meaning of the text for else, whatsoever truth is taught them, these enemies of all truth quench it again, partly with the smoke of their bottomless pit, that is, with apparent reasons of sophistry and traditions of their own making, founded without ground of Scripture, and partly in juggling with the text, expounding it in such sense as impossible to gather of the text, if thou see the process, order, and meaning thereof. So this thing only moved me to translate the New Testament. End quote. So he sees the ignorance... He's determined to make people know the truth, but he knows the only way he can do that is if they can have the Bible that they can read. And so he resigns his post with Walsh and he travels to London. Now he had learned that the Bishop of London was actually friends with Erasmus. Now if you don't know who Erasmus is, Erasmus was the first one to produce a Greek text of the New Testament. That text is pivotal to what we have today and to our English Bible. And the, the Bishop of London was friends with Erasmus. And so Tyndale got it in his head that he could travel and talk to the Bishop of London. And remember the law? If a bishop gave you permission, you could have a Bible in English. So he is convinced that this bishop in London will approve of his work and allow him to translate the Bible into English. But Bishop Tunstall would not give him permission. And the reason is Lutheranism is making its way into England. And he sees the problems that are being caused for the Catholic Church. He's seeing how... how and, and there's also things that are happening. I mean, there's people busting out windows. There's people destroying statues. There's all kinds of things that are happening over in Wittenberg. And he wants no part of that. And so he says, no, you can't translate the Bible into English. And he denies his 
request. Well, Tyndale's not deterred, finds a merchant there in, in England who's sympathetic to the Reformation. This man supported Tyndale as he preached the city and he was looking for an opportunity to translate the Bible, but eventually he realized there's no place for him in London. And so what does he do? Where do you think he goes? I believe I'll go to Germany, he says. In Germany, the Reformation is happening. And so that's exactly what he does. He, he leaves and he goes off to Germany. Luther is there and there are publishers there who will publish the Bible. And so it's advantageous to him to make his way to Germany. So he sails the English Channel. He arrives in Hamburg and William Tyndale will never return to England again. He will live the, re- the next 12 years of his life as an outlaw on the run, never to return home from this point on. Well, at some point in his life, uh, he had mastered German, and so he could travel through Germany just fine, speaking fluently to the people. And so he arrives in in Germany, he arrives there in in Hamburg, and then he travels to Wittenberg. He's under the influence of Luther there, and he begins translating the New Testament, but it's not complete there. He later moves to Cologne, and it's here that Tyndale finally completes his first New Testament translation. Now, the difficulty in this is not only in translating the Bible, but then you have to find somebody who's willing to publish it and print it. And whoever would do that is putting their life on the line. Now, Cologne is the largest city in in Germany, and it's strictly Catholic. And so it is a lot, there's a lot more risk in Cologne than there would be in Wittenberg, for example, for William Tyndale. So, So for someone to publish an English Bible would really be to risk their own lives there. But he found a publisher. He found a man uh, named Peter Quintel. But in Peter Quintel's publishing house or printing house, there was another man named John Dobnek who's overseeing the printing of his own works. And you know how they are in Germany. They like to drink, don't they? So one night, the men who worked at the printing house, they go out and they're having a little too much to drink and they start getting loose with their lips and they start talking and they tell Dobnek that England is about to be turned into Wittenberg. Well, Dobnek is a Catholic and he gets very upset about this and, and he sends off word to a senator in Cologne who has a connection with Henry VIII and they planned a raid on this printing house to go in and take... Tyndale's works and to destroy them. I don't know how, but Tyndale was always a step ahead. Somehow he found out this was going to happen. He ran in there, he collected all of his works, and he escaped uh, before this could happen. And so he went to Worms, where Luther had had the famous there, the Diet at Worms, where he gave his Here I Stand speech. And there in Worms in 1526, the English New Testament would finally be printed by Peter Schaffer. And finally, the first translation into English was completed. And you say, wait, it's not the first translation in English because John Wycliffe did that, yes. But John Wycliffe gave us an English Bible out of the Latin. William Tyndale gave us the New Testament out of Greek. So the first time we have a translation from the original languages of the New Testament, original language of the New Testament. Now Tyndale's Bible was brilliant. Many of the verses that you are familiar with and that rings something in your ear, you have them because of the way that William Tyndale translated them. He did not translate them in a rough and and wooden way. He wanted to make his New Testament readable and beautiful. And so he did just that. Let me give you some examples. It was Tyndale who coined these phrases, Knock, and it shall be opened to you. Seek, 
and you will find a twinkling of an eye. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. No man can serve two masters. The signs of the times, the Spirit is willing. For many are called, but few are chosen. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. The salt of the earth, all of that comes from the pen of William Tyndale. Before that would have been translated like the earth's salt, just a wooden way. But Tyndale added that beauty and poetry to his Bible. Sometimes there wasn't a word. And so William Tyndale made up a word to describe what he was talking about. The word Passover was invented by William Tyndale. The word scapegoat was invented by William Tyndale. William Tyndale is is writing with this beauty uh, that, that, that really turns the Bible into something that is an enjoyable read. The word atonement was invented by William Tyndale. I mean, his pen uh, was, was beautiful. Really, I mean, even Shakespeare is influenced by William Tyndale. I mean, really, a lot of people credit William Tyndale with our English language today. What we have as our English language really comes from William Tyndale and then also Shakespeare and others. But he was very influential in the English language, period, in the way that we, that we speak. But Tyndale's Bible was not only beautiful like this, he also challenged Roman Catholic doctrines. Now, I told you about the, the heretical doctrine of penance in the Roman Catholic Church. Well, this doctrine was invented because of a Latin translation that was do penance. Well, what does do penance mean? Not do, D-U-E, but do penance as a verb is how it was translated. William Tyndale looked at that and said, that's not what that says. It says repent. And so an entire system of doctrine was created on a bad translation from the Latin. And so William Tyndale corrected the false doctrine of penance by translating the word correctly. It's repent. It's not do penance. That's a lot different, isn't it? Well, the church was unhappy about this, and so William Tyndale challenged them. Show me where I am wrong, and if you can do it, I will recant. And of course... They never could. Tyndale said, If they perceived in any places that I have not obtained the very sense of the tongue or meaning of the Scripture or have not given the right English word, that they put their hands to amend it. Remember, it's their duty. If I'm wrong, it's their duty to correct it. They never did because they never could. Well, Tyndale is now the English Luther, a prime heretic of the church. That doesn't bother him at all. His... New Testament is printed. He immediately begins smuggling it into England. Somewhere between three and 6,000 copies of his New Testament are put into the bales of cotton. They're put into uh, into containers of of wine, and they're shipped in uh, to England and smuggled in by merchants there who are sympathetic to uh, the Reformation. The Tyndale New Testament actually wasn't very big. If you think about a small New Testament that you might carry around in your back pocket. His New Testament wasn't much bigger than that, and he did that on purpose because he wanted it to be able to be carried around secretly and hidden and smuggled, and that's exactly what he did. And these Bibles were taken, sold to peasants, merchants, students, and now the common people have access to a Bible that they can actually afford, and they are no longer dependent upon the church to tell them what to believe. Now, Steve Lawson, when he talks about this, He noted that when the Bible made its way into English and people began to read it, that they became exceedingly angry because they realized that they had been lied to their whole lives and their parents had been lied to. 
and there was an uprising and they began to tear down cathedrals and destroy all kinds of property because they were mad that they had been abused and stolen from and lied to for all of these years. And God's Word began to take hold of England in 1526. But the demand for his Bible outweighed the supply. And so he really had to figure out a way to keep affording and keep paying for the printing of his Bible. And meanwhile, the Catholic Church is trying to find a way to stop it. And so they come up with a great scheme. We're just going to go around and buy all of Tyndale's Bibles. And when we buy them, we'll destroy them. And and poof, all of his Bibles will be gone. And so they did just that. But they trusted a man who was friends with William Tyndale and he sold them the Bibles and then he took all the money and gave it to William Tyndale who further uh, printed more Bibles and spread even more than he had before using the church to finance his printing project. Uh, The church itself paid for the Tyndale New Testament. They also financed his next edition. They helped him to, to, to put another edition out to work and revise the New Testament. He did that in 1527. But the New Testament's not enough. Now he's teaching himself Hebrew. What are you doing with your life, people? He's teaching himself Hebrew now because he wants to give them the Old Testament as well. And so he begins to work on translating the Old Testament because he wants the whole Bible to be in the hands of the common people. Well, During this time, London is turned into a city of spies and the king's most trusted advisor, Cardinal Wolsey, instructs the bishop of London to be looking out for Tyndale and the Bibles are, are sought out, the followers the friends, the helpers of Tyndale, they are tracked down, they are arrested, they are tortured, but the Bibles continue to flood into England. It could not be stopped. Bregg writes this, he says, in 1526 and 1527, and for some times afterwards, the New Testaments were principally bought and read in London, Oxford, and Cambridge, and it is in these three citadels that Wolsey and his successors sought and found their prey. Evidence of any substance soon ceased to matter. Tyndale's adoption of Luther's justification by faith of inward purity and not outward show appealed to many Catholics who were weary of the corruption as they saw it and as they saw it, the falsities in their religion. So they were just tracking down anybody who they thought even might have any sort of association with Tyndale's Bible. And so Tyndale lost many friends. He lost many acquaintances of his, but he would not stop. He would not stop doing what he was doing. Now he is the enemy of three agencies. He's the enemy of the Holy Roman Emperor, he's the enemy of the the Vatican, and he's the enemy of Henry VIII's own ministers who would seek out his life. Well, in 1528, now Tyndale starts writing books. Again, folks, what are we doing with our lives? So he's translating the Bible, he's learning eight languages, and he's also writing books. He writes this book, which you can get these, you can buy, uh, I believe it's a two-volume set, The Works of William Tyndale. It has a great biography in the front. It also has these books that he has written. He writes, The Parable of the Wicked Mammon. And this book was published in Antwerp, and it was a book focused upon the gospel of justification by faith alone. William Tyndale preaching that salvation is in Christ alone, through faith in Christ alone, because that's what the Scriptures teaches. The book is based upon the parable of the dishonest steward in Luke 16, and building from the Scriptures, Tyndale argues that it's faith that actually produces deeds. It's faith that produces. We are saved by faith alone, but that faith by which we are saved is not alone. It produces the fruit of righteousness. That's what he is teaching here in, in Wicked Mammon. Now this book 
enrages the church. Again, you could be condemned for only having a copy of it. One man in London was discovered to have read the New Testament and wicked mammon. He was arrested, tortured, and burned alive just because he had read it. Well, the church then appealed to the English ambassador in the Netherlands to have Tyndale arrested and sent as a prisoner back to England to stand trial, but they searched and they could never find him. One of the the hard things about studying the history of William Tyndale is we don't always get a timeline because he's moving so much. He's having to stay alive and he's running and going to different cities and and different places trying to to stay alive. And, And for that reason, they couldn't find him. They tried so hard, but they never could until the end track him down. Well, Tyndale is actually in Marburg. He's studying Hebrew still. And from there, he eventually moves to Antwerp. And having learned Hebrew by this point, he completes the translation of the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. But he can't publish it there. And so he wants to go to Hamburg instead so he can publish it. And so he gets on a ship. He's going down the Rhine River and he has a shipwreck and all of his work is lost. All of it is destroyed in the Rhine River. He has to start over with the Old Testament from scratch. But that's what he does. Even shipwreck doesn't deter William Tyndale. He gets on another ship and he he heads off to Hamburg again. In Hamburg, he meets up with a man who was a former classmate of his in Cambridge, Miles Coverdale, and they become friends. And there in 1529, Tyndale, along with the help of Coverdale, they translate the first five books of Moses into English. It took several months to accomplish that, but in 1530, they were printed at Antwerp, and they are smuggled into England as well. By this point, the church is still hard after him, of course, but there's another thing happening. <clears throat> Henry VIII is trying his best to divorce his wife. And he wants to marry Anne Boleyn. Some of you may be familiar with this story. And he is, he is just consumed with this idea of being able to get rid of Catherine and marry Anne Boleyn. And he's trying to find justification over it. He's trying to get the Pope to approve it. And, and he just won't do it. And he thinks that William Tyndale is actually an obstacle. If I can just get rid of William Tyndale... Maybe the Pope will approve and allow me to divorce my wife so I could marry Anne Boleyn. And so he hires another man, Sir Thomas More, who is actually regarded as a saint in the Catholic Church. And this guy was wicked, exceedingly wicked. But he hires Sir Thomas More and he commissions him to attack uh, William Tyndale. He wrote the dialogue concerning heresies in which he explained that Tyndale was the most dangerous man in all of England. He identified Tyndale as the captain of English heretics, a hellhound in the kennel of the devil. He called him a new Judas. He said that Tyndale was a devil worshiper because he's given God's word to the people. That's the way Thomas More identified him. More maintains, of course, that the only true church is the Roman Catholic Church, and it speaks infallibly as the one interpreter of the Bible. And so we don't need people reading the Bible and making interpretations for themselves. The church is infallible. Well, Tyndale's not afraid. He speaks back like Wycliffe before him. I skipped over the section where Wycliffe is referring to the Pope as the office of the devil. 
Tyndale says the same thing. He referred to Moore as a lying papist and as the devil of Satan. He wasn't afraid uh, to use his tongue to fight back, was he? But he continued his work. He retranslated the law yet again, had them printed in Antwerp and yet again smuggled uh, into England. And now he wants to get the rest of the Old Testament. He's got the, the law done. He wants to move to the prophets. He wants to translate the rest. And so he, he sets to work about, about doing that while they are trying to track him down. A man named John West is sent from England to catch him. He, he lands at Antwerp. He hunts for Tyndale. And yet again, he can't find him. Tyndale just continues to elude capture. And it was during this time that Tyndale published another book called The Obedience of a Christian Man. And Anne Boleyn loved this book. She got a copy of it, she read it, and she put it in the hands of the king. And the reason for that is that in the book, The Obedience of the Christian Man, William Tyndale argued for the supremacy of the king, that the king was the chief power over politics and over the land and not the pope. The king's not to be subservient to the pope. Well, now suddenly Henry's thinking, well, maybe I can use use him as an ally. Maybe I could bring him back to uh, to England. And so he tries, uh, tries to do that. He's trying to get... Uh, Tyndale to, to help him, but Tyndale's not friends with the king. I wonder sometimes if, if Tyndale heard about this because he then wrote another book called The Practice of Prelates and he used scripture. He called Henry's actions of trying to divorce his wife and marry another to be sinful. So he's not trying to make friends with the king. He doesn't care anything about that. He cares about truth, not alliances. Well, Henry's furious, but he still believes he can persuade Tyndale, so he invites Tyndale back to England Thomas Cromwell, who's a chancellor of Henry VIII, uh, he's going to be a major player in the English Reformation, by the way. He wants to help in this matter. He wants Tyndale back into England, so he hires a man named Stephen Vaughn to track Tyndale down. And though many had tried and failed before, Vaughn actually finds him. You might say, though, that Tyndale found Vaughn. Tyndale had sent a man to Vaughn and and said, Tyndale wants to meet you at such and such a place. And Vaughn walks out into this field and suddenly there's Tyndale standing there and says, Hello, I'm William Tyndale. And he decides to have a conversation uh, with this man, Vaughn. And, And he told him, he said, All I want is to fulfill my mission. And he asked Vaughn about the king. Tyndale said this, Why is the king so unkind to God? which has commanded His Word to be spread throughout the world and say that it is not lawful for the people to have the same in a tongue that they can understand because the purity thereof shall open men's eyes to see their own wickedness. Why would the king be so unkind to be on the side of the devil and not on the side of God? Does he not want God's Word in the hands of the people? Well, Vaughn tried to persuade Tyndale. He said to Tyndale, cheer up! Your exile, your poverty, your fightings, they're all at an end. You can return to England. But Tyndale doesn't trust him. Listen to what Tyndale says. I told you when we began that this was a man of singular focus. Listen to what he said. What matters it if my exile finishes so long as the Bible is banished? Has the king forgotten that God has commanded his word to be spread throughout the world? If it continues to be forbidden to his subjects, very death were more pleasant to me than life. I would rather die than know that the Bible is still forbidden in the hands of the English. He went on to make a deal with Vaughn. This is what he said. If His Majesty would condescend to permit 
only a bare text of the Scriptures to circulate among the people as they do in the states of the emperor and in other Christian countries, I would bind myself never to write again. I would throw myself at His feet, offering my body as a sacrifice, ready to submit, if necessary, to torture and even to death." End quote. Just a bare text and I'll give myself to be burned. I don't care. If anyone would come after me, let he deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow after me. This is what we're seeing in Tyndale, isn't it? It's not hyperbole. Well, of course, the king would not agree to this. Tyndale knew it, so he, like a ghost, disappeared into the field. Never to be seen by Vaughn again. Thomas More is angry about this. The king hears about this. The king's angry about this. And so Thomas More writes another treatise against Tyndale. It's like a six-volume work. It's almost like 750,000 words that he wrote against Tyndale. You want to talk about somebody (laughs) who hated William Tyndale. Imagine writing 750,000 words against one man. Uh, Craziness. But that's what they did. Uh, But they wouldn't have to worry about Tyndale much longer, at least not the man himself. In 1534, Tyndale moved into the home of a wealthy man named Thomas Points in Antwerp. And Points was was good to Tyndale. He protected him. He even, he even provided Tyndale with a stipend so that he could live and, and do his translating work. And It's here where Tyndale is going to meet a man named John Rogers. That's an important name for you to remember. John Rogers was a former Catholic priest who Tyndale had led to Christ. John Rogers is converted under the ministry of William Tyndale. Well, in the home of Points, Tyndale starts working on a revision of his New Testament translations. It includes some 4,000 changes and updates. He's also working on the next aspect of the Old Testament, Joshua through Second Chronicles. And alongside of his translation work, John Fox tells us that Tyndale would visit the poor. He would minister to them. On Sundays, Tyndale would read and preach the Scriptures to any who would come and hear him. So Tyndale is over in Antwerp in the home of Thomas Points. He's translating the Bible still. He's preaching. He's ministering to the poor. He's being just a a godly man. And then there's another man who's the opposite of William Tyndale. His name is Henry Phillips. And Henry Phillips is a degenerate man. He's a gambler. His father was a businessman. And his father owed a debt to another man and he He wanted to pay and he trusted his son with a large sum of money to take and to pay off this businessman that his father owed. Well, Phillips looked at that money one time and, well, he went and gambled it and he lost it all. He lost everything gambling his father's money. He's desperate now. He's got to somehow he's got to recuperate those those funds and, and he doesn't know how he's going to do it and, and we don't know how, but somehow the church found out that Henry Phillips was in this desperate situation and would do anything to make this money back. And so they went to him and they offered him a deal. Bring us Tyndale and we'll give you the money back that you lost. And Henry Phillips agreed. Well, Phillips then went to, to Antwerp and he presents himself there as a Protestant, as someone who is a true believer in justification by faith alone. He, he somehow weasels his way in and becomes friends with the merchants in the area who had been protecting and provided, providing for Tyndale. And they introduce 
this man to Tyndale. Now, it might surprise you, but historians tell us that Tyndale was kind of a gullible man. He was a sweet man who was very trusting. He, he didn't really look for the bad in people. He always looked for the good in people. And when he met Henry Phillips, it was not very hard at all for Phillips to convince him that he was a friend. He took Phillips back and introduced him to Points, and Points warned him about Phillips. There was something about him that, that didn't sit right with Points, but Tyndale didn't, didn't listen. He really thought that Phillips was, was a good man, and so they have become fast friends. Phillips then went off to Brussels, and when he went off to Brussels, he got himself a garrison of soldiers, and he brought them back, and he, and he put them in strategic places in the village, and he, he went one day and, and met up with Tyndale at the home of Points, who, if I'm not mistaken, was away at the time on a vacation, and he, he asked Tyndale out to lunch. He said, hey, uh, uh, you know, let's, let's go out to, to lunch today, and, and Tyndale agreed, and, and, and they're walking down the, the streets there of Antwerp, and they're, they're heading towards a spot, and Henry Phillips falls back behind Tyndale and just points him out, and the soldiers, they, they come out, and they arrest him. Finally, after 12 years of Tyndale living as an outlaw, they've captured him. Now they want his works. And so they go back to the house of points looking for his works. But again, somehow in God's providence, his friends had learned what had happened. And John Rogers, we believe, went back to the home of points and took all of Tyndale's works and escaped and fled with them. So they never were able to get his works and to destroy them. So the works of Tyndale, all of his translation, all of his notes are in the possession of John Rogers. Well, he is in Tyndale, that is, is imprisoned in Brussels, and there he waited a year for his trial. And during that time in prison, he wrote another work, Faith Alone Justifies Before God. He would not yield, no matter the circumstances. John Fox tells us about these last days of Tyndale. He says, as Tyndale sat in prison, he was affecting his very enemies as he converted his keeper, the keeper's daughter, and the others of his household. He's like Paul, who's evangelizing his captors. He's not stuck in there with them. They're stuck in there with him. And he's telling them the gospel, and, uh, and they are converted. Well, finally, in August of 1536, Tyndale's trial was held. The accusers, they, they brought forward their charges. Among them was his belief in the justification by faith alone, but of course the main one was his production of the English Bible. He was declared a heretic. He was officially excommunicated before being turned over uh, to be executed. On October 6th of that year, Tyndale was led to the stake. And as I said earlier, they tied him to the stake. They strangled him with the chain. They set him on fire. They poured gunpowder around and, and it exploded. And William Tyndale was blown up until he was unrecognizable. That was their hatred for the man who translated the Bible into English. He was murdered by the Roman Catholic Church. Before he died, he had one final prayer. His words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Open the King of England's eyes. God would answer this prayer. A full Bible was being spread through Europe. Tyndale's friend, Miles Coverdale, had used Tyndale's work and had printed a Bible in 1535, but a greater work than that would be accomplished. John Rogers, 
who was converted under the ministry of William Tyndale, who we believe collected all of his works and escaped with them. John Rogers would, would print a second English translation of the Bible in 1537. This Bible would be known as the Matthews Bible because Rogers printed it under the pseudonym Thomas Matthews to try to keep from being captured. Well, a year after Tyndale's death, Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, along with Oliver Cromwell, convinced Henry to approve the English Bible, and he did. And the Matthews Bible that had the initials of William Tyndale between the Old Testament and the New Testament was now distributed freely all throughout England. In 1538, the king actually issued a decree that the English Bible should be placed in every church in England. And it was. It was chained to the pulpit in every church in England in 1538. Did God answer the prayer of William Tyndale? The English Bible was now spread throughout English or throughout England. Steve Lawson writes, as these printed English Bibles became accessible to the common man in England, Tyndale's plowman was at last reading, discussing, living, and proclaiming the truths of the Bible among his relatives, friends, and his countrymen, end quote. Further, it would actually be William Tyndale's translation of the Bible that would be the basis of the King James Bible, which was first translated in 1611. Tyndale's Bible is, in fact, the foundation of all of our English Bibles that we read today. Bregg wrote this. He said, the King James Bible, listen to these stats. The King James Bible New Testament is almost entirely Tyndale's work. It is now estimated that more than 93% of the King James New Testament was Tyndale's work. And the Old Testament, the books he had translated, the first five, are about 85% Tyndale. In 1537, the Tyndale Bible based... Matthew's Bible was published, licensed by the king, and John Rogers was faithful to his friend. Uh, He put the initials WT at the end of the prophets, and most of all, he honored Tyndale's work in this 1537 edition, which itself became the source for other versions which appeared throughout the century." The point is, the English Bible that you have today is Tyndale's Bible, just a different name. It's Tyndale's work. Just think about that. We can't improve upon what God used this man all these years ago to do in English. The Bible had such a reach, it had such an impact on the English that Tyndale has been referred to as the father of the English language. And so here we have a man as we finish. This is a man to imitate. I want to remind you, one of the problems that that we have in the church today is that we elevate men and we treat them as celebrities. And I could say names that you all know, and it's, it's probably not even their fault, but we elevate them and, and make celebrities out of them as if they're... It's almost like Roman Catholicism. They're on another level like the clergy, and we're all just down here. The Apostle Paul describes himself in, Second, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 as a galley slave the lowest slave, nobody, that he has nothing that he hasn't received, as he says there to the Corinthians. He could even include himself in that. 
And we have the same tendency to look back at these men in history and we see John Wycliffe and Martin Luther and William Tyndale as giants of the Christian faith. And and they are, of course. But they're just men, just like you. God gifted them and empowered them and gave them courage to do the things that they did. But they're just men. And you know what that tells us? That God can work in you. In you. God can work in even sinful men such as myself and such as you. William Tyndale was a brilliant man. But there have been far less brilliant men whom God has used in a mighty way. So we must imitate this and strive by the power of God to fulfill the calling that God has given in our lives. And each of our callings, ladies and gentlemen, is to take God's Word into this world. You haven't been called to translate the Bible into English. That's no longer needed. But you have been called to take God's Word and even just share it with your neighbor, your co-worker, your father, your child, your cousin, your brother, your sister. And you know what? Not one of us is going to be tied to the stake for it. What are we so afraid of? God has given to us an incredible gift of His Word. Let us give our lives in sharing that with this lost world that needs it because only through them, through this Word, excuse me, can people be saved. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. May we be people of the truth even in times of difficulty and hatred from the world. Let me close with a quote from William Tyndale himself. Let it not make you despair, neither yet discourage you, O reader, that it is forbidden in pain of life and goods, or that it is made breaking of the king's peace or treason unto his highness to read the word of your soul's health. health. For if God be on our side, what does it matter who be against us, be it bishops, cardinals, or popes? Let's pray.